0: blesses what I do. I'll keep doing it. I love what I do. I really do love getting to meet folks like you. Uh, I know you don't know me, um, and I want you to know just I've come out of a pastoral background. I love the Lord, and I love the church, and I love the privilege of being able to share the gospel and talk about what it means to live that gospel out. Um, I will tell you that there is another little secret to it. This is my attempt at a joke, I don't do jokes very well, but this is my attempt to do a joke, so I have to tell people when I'm telling a joke or they don't get it, you know, so, um, but I've only drunk half of this, (laughs) so I'm I'm in a little bit of a deficit right now, right now, but I'll try to pick it up and get, get moving along with it a little bit, so, um, but honestly, you're getting a brochure in your hand, it's called Pursuing Peace Together, as you'll note, um, I'll pray for you in just a second before we start talking about these things, but this comes out of a guy named Ken Sandy. I don't know if you know that name or not, Uh, Ken Sandy's ministry. He's an attorney out in Montana. Uh, He's been an attorney for a long, long time. He was in the Christian Legal Society 40 years ago or so, and they started seeing lawsuits happening among Christians, and as Christian attorneys, they were going, something's wrong with this picture. So he ended up writing a book called The Peacemaker, and many of the things inside this guide come from that book, The Peacemaker. It is known now as a primer for biblical peacemaking, especially when you think in terms of a relationship, which is always true, right? Uh, you don't get angry. Well, you might get angry with your car or an inanimate objects or a dog or something like that you know but it's people that we get upset with it's people who offend us it's people that we have a hard time understanding or communicating with or figuring out it's people you know it's relationships and it doesn't make any difference whether it's a really small church I mean I worked with a church earlier this year that that you know they have about I don't know 30 people in it it's really small you know I'm about to work with another one that has 20 adults in it. And I've worked with a church of 20,000. I work with a church of 12,000. Work with multiple churches with multiple thousands of people. Nothing changes. (laughs) The principles stay the same from God's Word, first of all. And secondly, it's relational. It's about me and that person. It's about two people. It's about a group of people and the dynamics that are going on with them that keep them upset with each other. And how do you get to that peace word, you know? And you know, sometimes people go, Give me just just give me give me some peace. Just give me a little bit of peace. Give me some space so I can just have some peace, right? And what they really mean is, Leave me alone. (laughs) Something's bothering me. It's you. (laughs) If you would quit, I would be great, you know? All of those things. And and so it's people, it's always people. And it can be dynamic inside of leadership groups, inside of congregations, inside of boards inside of companies, organizations, schools. I mean, it it can be really dynamic based on those kind of structures that are around it, but it all comes down to people. And so Ken's book is used all over the world now. It's in multiple languages. Uh, It's it's taught in seminaries. Every seminary you can probably name, it's taught. I met Ken at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. I live in Orlando area. Uh, I've been a long-term Florida resident most of my life. Uh, love it down there, by the way. But nonetheless, he came in to do a doctoral seminar in biblical peacemaking. Um, and I had just finished the degree, and this was January, July of 2000. I had just finished the degree a little bit earlier than that and walked into this room, didn't know who he was, had not read his stuff. I didn't have to prepare because I'd already finished the degree. Uh, but I sat down, and as an educated guy, a guy had been in ministry for quite a number of years, I learned stuff I didn't know. And so this morning, what I want to do is transfer some of those learnings and transfer some of the frameworks that help us when we're trying to figure out relational challenges, relational difficulties. And I will tell you, I have yet to meet a human being that does not have challenges with other people. I've yet to meet him one of the recognitions I came to years ago when I heard Ken talk, and when I started learning these principles, I started applying these principles. I was a pastor at that time, and That year, I actually took these principles and taught it to my congregation, began teaching it three times a year to get it into the culture of the church and the nature of the church, new people coming in, heard it from the very beginning of their time at the church, all of those kinds of things. You do those kinds of things just to be effective in in how you're communicating and what the foundation for resolving conflict is, what the foundation for knowing how to communicate in an effective manner instead of it just being missing each other all the time, you know? just just jammed. But one of my learnings was the only thing I need to be in conflict is a mirror. That's all I need. Conflict starts in here. Conflict starts in me. My conflict with you starts in me. And when we learn that and we get the focus here, now we have opportunity because if I grow, if I change, if I figure out how to relate, how to communicate, how to respond differently than the way I do respond, that ends up spurring the other person on. It's called escalation, right? Where I do something that causes them to respond a certain way. They do something that causes me to respond a different way. And all of a sudden, we're spiraling out of control. And the conversation gets beyond us. You know, well, if I can focus on me, I can ebb that flow. You know, I can do something, and that's my biblical responsibility. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Romans 12:18. There's the command. It's an exhortation. It's a statement by the Apostle Paul in his theology, Romans, of what the gospel means to the life of the local church. And he says, "You have responsibilities in those things. So as far as it depends on you, be at peace with. Them. What do you need to do? What can you do to help prosper that peace? To help create the thing that God really does want in that. Instead of the agitation, the irritation, you know, the the tension, uh, you know, sometimes the confusion. Is, you ever notice that you get into conflict and it's confusing? You're going, what's wrong with this? Why doesn't it? Why can't we just figure this out?" You know and usually we say to the other person get a life (laughs) change you you use the word it's you it's you it's you No, it's not it's me it's I I I'm responsible to God now so are you right but just think about it if everyone took that position that it starts with me and it starts inside me if everyone took that position then we've got opportunity but if we do the blame game and we just talk about you, and we point the finger, you know. I mean, if, if that's how we think, if that's how we behave, if that's how we act, if that's what we're focused on, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. And so this, this responsibility comes down to me. That's why it's personal peacemaking. That's why it's the nature of what God is up to inside of each one of us. And so uh, with that in mind, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive in. So, Lord, um, thank you for the day. Thank you for the opportunity this morning uh, to be with these folks. Uh, it's such a privilege of mine. And, God, I don't take that for granted at all. Um, you honor me by that. You uh, give great privilege in my heart and life. Because, and, uh, I, Lord, I have challenges. I have difficulties with other people. There are times when I get confused, and I don't understand them at all. And there's times when I'm angry. There's times when I react, there's times inside myself I may hide it, may not show it, but inside of myself there's a tension that I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out between me and you. Because Lord, it's you. It's and it's with you. It's me to you, it's you to me. It's that personal relationship with Christ and what it means to abide in Christ. If we if we could figure that out, Lord, and really live in that, how that would translate relationally is unbelievable. We, we see that in your word. We see that in the examples, not only the the bad examples of people who don't forgive and uh, the, the problem of not forgiving, the problem of being uh, literally after someone to where we're after them and we want them harmed. We want them silenced. We want them hurt. God, that's not you. You pursue us for peace. You pursue us to... Make us more like Yourself. We, you, you pursue us to change us, to give us eternal life. Lord, may we be like that. And may we figure out how to do that in relationship. So as we open this brochure this morning, as we just think out loud about some of these principles and, and the processes, I just pray that You give clarity to that. We'll refer to Scripture, Lord. And I know there's one that I want to talk about a, a little bit this morning that I don't think we talked about it yesterday. I know I mentioned it, but I don't think I talked about the salient point inside of that text and what God you're after for us, but I pray that you just give us ears to hear, uh, that we would hear your voice. Uh, Lord, uh, my heart, my longing is that these folks, including myself, would hear your voice much more clearly than they hear mine. God, grant the grace of that and the mercy of that as we open your word and as we think about these principles in Christ's name. Amen. So, a number of years ago, I felt called to do this work, you know, and began doing it nationally in 2009, January of 2009 is when I started doing it nationally. Prior to that, I was working in Orlando. Uh, there was an attorney and I who, we had, I had a full-time ministry, I had a full-time legal practice, but we started a nonprofit to work with churches that were in lawsuits that couldn't resolve those issues. It grew from there. It got much broader. That was from 2002 to 2008. Um, but we've seen God change people. We've seen him work in places, you know. Never will forget in Ohio a few years ago, this one gentleman I was talking to, I call it the contact person, and that's David for you guys here. Um, But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking with him a lot and all those kind of things, and he just simply said, Paul, it's going to take a miracle. This is not going to change unless a miracle occurs. And I never will forget, we were in one particular, we call them mediations, but they're, they're facilitated conversations between the parties with someone like me, helping them g- get past the barriers that are keeping them from, res- from resolution, keeping them from the thing God has called us to. Because God has called you to this. You know, he's called you to peace. And He's called you together as a congregation, together as the body of Christ to His peace. He wants that for us. And I never will forget that night, this guy just, he just kind of slinked back in his chair, and he said, we just had a miracle. <laughs> it was beautiful, you know, because God changed it. God did things they didn't believe were do- was doable, you know. And so when we think in terms of that, there's always things that keep us from what God is up to. But God's will can't be thwarted. And God's work in your life can't be thwarted. You're predestined to become like him. Do you remember Romans eight, twenty-nine? You're predestined to become like Christ. You will become like Christ. And he and, and here's here's the secret to it. Sometimes we think, if everything would go well, if everybody'd leave me alone, if we would just not have these wars, we would be great. You know, we would become like Christ. It'd be free-flowing and easy. And we love those times when there's no tension, right? We love those times when there's no, no, no bashing, no battering, no push. But you know what the Scripture actually teaches? It actually teaches that conflict is a gift. Conflict, Ken Sandy would say, is an assignment in God's sovereignty... If a conflict between you and another person doesn't just go away, it doesn't just get resolved, God is in control of that. He has not lost control for one minute, and He is orchestrating the difficulty we have with the other person on purpose for that person's sanctification and for mine. And when we start believing conflict is actually something I don't need to run away from, I need to understand and press into and figure out how to respond to it in an effective manner, when we do that, it changes everything. It does. It changes everything. That was one of those revelatory things to me, because quite frankly, you know, we, we, if you open the brochure up to this little uh, diagram, it's called the Slippery Slope, it's uh, bluish and tannish colored. You'll see it called the slippery slope. It has three different kinds of responses to conflict. I'll tell you the reason why conflict stays alive is because of the way we respond. How we respond to God, how we respond to that other person, how we even respond to ourselves. That's the reason conflict stays alive. It keeps going and going and going. and doesn't seem... You know, we, we end up thinking if the other guy would die... I had a pastor one time, he actually said this sentence to me. I keep doing the wrong funerals. Where was his heart? And and by the way, just in case I missed it, he said, if four or five guys around here, talking about his church, if four or five guys would die, we would be great. (laughs) Missed the point totally. By the way, that pastor is a very good friend of mine. He just retired not too long ago. He's an associate pastor in a church in Alabama. Right now, he's a godly man. He's growing. I mean, God took him from some place that was pretty dark and took him to a place of really serving Christ well. And it was, it was beautiful to watch. That's been three-plus decades of time uh, for, for all of that. But that escape behavior, that's me. I love to run away from problems. <laughs> it's so much easier. That's what I think. Is that good thinking? Just say no. <laughs> Escape behavior is not the deal. Now, I will tell you if, you, if you look at the three dynamics that are there, denial is one of the escapes. Like, we don't really have a problem, and everybody's going, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, you know, somebody looking on, you got to be kidding me. Because sometimes we don't, know, we don't think about it as a problem. Or we don't want it to be a problem, so we don't make it a problem. We just keep it in that escape behavior kind of thing. It's denial. But if you look just to the right of that, in one of the peacemaking responses, it's overlooking. Proverbs 19 says it's a glory to a person to overlook an offense. So what can you overlook? Someone walked up to me yesterday and said, how do you know when to overlook? And I said, well, some things are too serious. If it's too serious, you can't overlook it. You have to deal with it. Some things are simple. And if you can overlook it, then good, do. Now, for me, overlooking isn't just denial. It's not just saying we don't really have a problem. Overlook is forgiveness without the transaction. I don't come up to you and say, you need to own what you did. But I can give you forgiveness and live with you in forgiveness. No tension over the difficulty. It's gone. If you can do that, you can overlook. But you know what the difference between denial and overlook is? A fine line. <laughs> they are right next to each other on purpose. So many times, people will be trying to overlook. They'll tell you they're overlooking it, but they're bothering. So in Ken Sandy's book, one of the things he says, he calls it the three-day rule. He says, if you're overlooking something and this issue with this other person is there, after three days, if it's still bothering you, you got to deal with it. You can't overlook it. The tension, the dissonance, the problem, the issue... The offensive nature of that issue, the emotional response to that issue, like anger, or or just distancing, which is denial. I just distance myself. Not good, right? So this escape behavior is one of the things that we find more people are escapers than they are attackers. If you look over to the right hand side of that slope, there's attack responses. I'll talk about those in just a moment. But but we we find that there's more people who are escaper than attackers. But you know what I learned? I'm an escaper. But when I learned how to actually have that conversation, how to approach that other person, how, what are the means by which we actually address the issue differently than we've been addressing it, because the way we've been addressing it has left, led us to where we are now. If I keep doing that and think I'm going to get to some different place, I'm not thinking well. So I need a different path. I need something. I need input. I need influence. I need new process, new voice, you know. Something I'm had has to get added to that or else I'm going to be in the same place I've been. And so that's that, that's that piece. So is it denial? Is it overlooked? I mean, we, we will defend ourselves saying I'm, I'm overlooking when we're actually denying. Okay, now if you go down one more slide to the, to the right there of denial, you see flight. Now I have to say to you, there are some things to run away from. And in Scripture, there's places where it says flee, and it names something. And when, when Scripture says to run, run. Run fast, run hard, get away from it. And, I, and there's a lot of examples of that. I'm going to use one example because it's not really our subject, you know, but I'll, so, so let me just say it. Abuse is never okay. Abuse is never okay. Now, How I define it, how I get to the place where I believe abusive behavior is in play is an important factor because I can call something something when it is not that. I can be deceived about it. I can think it's one thing because maybe the impact on me is pretty strong, but it's not really what that other person is doing. I'm just feeling it that way. You know, emotion has a way of expanding things. It has a way of causing it to explode, causing it to be bigger than it actually is. And if I'm going to resolve it, I have to actually get outside of that emotion in order to be able to resolve it. But when abuse is in place, there should be, there should be flight. You should get, a, get away from it. Abuse is not okay. It's never okay. It's never been okay. It'll never be okay. Now, you can get away from it if you think you're in an abusive thing and then assess it get someone to help you assess it so you can determine whether it really is abuse because it may not be abuse and there may be a safe way to, to walk back into that space and, and to deal with it. So, so there are reasons to run, to, to flee, okay? But when it becomes the normal behavior, <laughs> when it becomes the go-to, when you get into a tension moment you know i told a story yesterday about my wife and i having this conversation you know i mean we were in an argument come on you know and quite frankly i was losing that argument i was losing it very badly and i just got up and walked out of the room (laughs) now that was wrong that was sinful it was actually disrespectful i mean i walked out of the room on the woman i love the woman I've committed my life to. To live life with. And we've experienced a lot of life together. And I got up and just walked out. Because it's easy. So, we're, so what's your tendency? That's kind of like... So this is a diagnostic tool. You can actually look at the conflict that you're in and plot yourself on this graph. Now, I'll tell you a story just to make a point, but... You know, uh, you know it's, not easy, it's not easy at all and hard for, at all for me to be able to say, yep, I'm running away from this. And by the way, that word suicide, there are, there are times when people actually commit suicide. And that's included. That's the ultimate escape in human life, right? It's awful. I've only worked with one church where suicide was actually the reason why we came. And by the way, it was a church out in California. It was a pretty good-sized church, almost 1,000 people. And it was a senior pastor who killed himself. It was awful. It was awful. But I have worked with hundreds of people who are relationally committing suicide. They just back away. Quiet. They'll say, I don't have a beef. You know, they'll say that. They'll say, it's okay. But actually, they're escaping. And actually, they're silencing the other person. They're silencing themselves. They don't have voice, they don't want voice. they're safe without voice, and so they don't speak. They don't, they don't not what God's called us to. God's commanded you to speak the truth in love. God's commanded you don't lie to the other person, which means you're a truth teller. God's commanded you to encourage that other person day after day as long as it is called today. We are called to speak into each other's lives. Silence is not the answer. And so we have to be careful. So where do you plot yourself? So, so one quick story. I was in a mediation time one time, and I was talking to this guy, getting him ready to go into mediation. And I looked at the, you know, I put the slope in front of him. I said, so plot yourself on this slope. Where do you see yourself? You know, he told me about the problem. And I get it. I, I, I could see where he was at, at odds with this other fellow. And he put his finger down on that word. You see it in the brown reconciliation. And I see, he said, that got me right there. And I said, Really? So how did you see yourself getting there, you know? And he said, well, I'm here talking to you, aren't I? (laughs) He was trying to make progress. But actually, he did what I call straddling the slope. He had one foot in escape where he's not talking to the guy that he's upset with, nor is he listening to him. And he had the other foot in attack where he's talking about the guy that he's upset with with other people who have no interest in the difficulty between the two of them. He's got his foot in an escape and attack. It can be pretty confusing too because this person is saying, what did I do? I didn't do anything. And that's part of the problem because we're commanded to do a lot. If you look at the peacemaking responses, there's six of them. There's only three escape responses. There's only three attack responses. <laughs> double the number of any one side, you know? I mean, there's a lot of think, things we can do. We're, we'll get into what a couple of those are here in just a moment. But there's a lot of these. But you know what, what I find, and the reason I'm spending time on this is because yesterday I didn't, get time to, I didn't have the time to do this. That's the number one. And then the second reason is because the way I diagnose myself the way I view myself in the conflict can keep me from the very things God has called me to. And then I get to speak this morning in the sermon. You'll hear a text out of Hebrews that's going to say to us we need to press into those things. We need to step into, but I'm stepping out of. And I may be stepping out of because I'm escaping. I may be stepping out of because I'm angry with you and I don't want to talk to you, but I am going to make sure that my friends don't like you either. It's called relational loyalty. And relational loyalty is an enemy to the cross. We need to be loyal to the gospel. We need to be loyal to the scripture. We need to be loyal to Jesus and what he's called us to, not just to each other. Now, do I like loyalty? I think loyalty is wonderful. I think we should be loyal to each other. But we can't elevate relational loyalty over loyalty to the cross, over loyalty to Christ, over loyalty to being a Christian who's living out my faith by, by walking in and through what the Scripture teaches me to walk in and through. And if it says go to that person, I need to go. Matthew 5, You know, you're here today. You're going to worship, right? Say right. We get to worship. (laughs) Worship is a joy. Worship is soul cleansing. Worship is something we get to step into heaven before we get there. Worship is precious. You know, we get to worship. And in Matthew 5, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually says, Leave your offering at the altar first. Prior to that worship, first go be reconciled. Reconciliation is part of the gospel. And you'll hear it in the sermon this morning. Reconciliation is what God has called us to, what He wants for us. So when I'm broken with that other person, I need to figure out a way that that brokenness can be mended, that it can be repaired, that it can be healed. Healing is the right word. That's a James 5 word for me. You know, confess your sins to one another. There's a relational piece, isn't it? You actually hear me say, I sinned against you, and here is how. Here's what I'm going to do to repair this. I know I hurt you. I know right now you don't trust me or some other consequence. And I recognize that I need to change. And I'm committed to doing those things. You hear that. Confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another. We don't get to healing without prayer and without genuine prayer for each other. You know, it's, it's interesting in mediations when you see an offender who's actually sinned against another person and an offended, the person who was sinned against, to actually pray for each other to change, to be healed, to experience something different. Now we're appealing to God to do something inside of us. So, so my ability to know where I am on this slope is a big deal as to know, to know what to do next. Now, if you just open it up one more flap, let me introduce you to relational wisdom. So this little th- circle that you'll see over on the opposite side of the page, uh, if you just fold it in half where the slope is on one side and the circle is on the other side, you'll get biblical peacemaking on the slope side and relational wisdom on the circle side. Three components of relational wisdom. This isn't rocket scientist stuff. I think it's genius. I think it's, it's really helpful to us because it reminds us that God, self, and others are always involved in every conflict. And when you have a conflict with another person, God needs to be part of your awareness and part of your engagement. That other person needs part of your awareness and part of your engagement. You need to have an awareness of where you are and be engaged according to what the Scripture calls you to and the Holy Spirit inspires you inspires you to do. So God self-others, always. The two dynamics are awareness and engagement. When I'm unaware of something, I don't know what to do with it. And, and sometimes a person will come up and say, do you remember this? And you go, no, <laughs> I don't remember it, you know. Or, or they remember something differently than you do. There's an awareness difference in what took place. Well, we got to think through those things in order to be able to understand so that you gain awareness. Relational wisdom says, when I'm in an exchange with another person, there's three of us in that exchange, not two. I must respond to God and become aware of God because God speaks into every one of those conflicts. If I have a conflict about something and I'm, I'm, I'm upset with you, and I'll just, I'll, um, okay, it's the only word is coming to mind right now, so I'll use it. Uh, it's not the best example, but hate. You know, I hate you right now. Maybe dislike is better. I dislike you right now. Maybe I see you differently than I normally see you. You're a brother, a sister in Christ, but I think you're an opponent. Or I view you as an enemy. I view you as someone who is against me. I mean, all those things. Just think if you had Jesus in that view and you said, He is my enemy. Oh my goodness, I would be in trouble, wouldn't I? He's my opponent, but I view you that way. See, there's an awareness problem inside of that, isn't there? Because who you are in Christ needs to direct what I do with you, not your behavior in the conflict. The behavior in the conflict is what we generally respond to, but there's a whole lot more than just the behavior in the conflict. Because why did that person do that? Well, I don't know right now. I don't know. He may not know. She may not know. Sometimes we do things out of ignorance. Sometimes we do things out of a loss, or we don't know what to do, so we do something, right? We just act, and sometimes it's, it's just normal inside of us. It's my emotion. I mean, what's going on inside my own heart and inside my own emotional life? And what is the factor of that in the conflict? I can tell you it's a big one. And if I'm not aware of what's going on inside of me... If I'm not aware of what's going on inside of you, and most of the time we separate ourselves from each other, escape, or we don't like each other so we don't talk, and we just lob volleys over the fence at the other person, you know? We've just we got that. I can tell you awareness is going down every day when that's the setting. It can't be going up because I'm not exchanging life with you. I'm not around you. I'm not listening to your voice. I'm not understanding what is it that's going on inside of you. You know, so someone recently hurt me. I'm still waiting. I am right now. I'm still waiting on that person saying, Paul, when I hurt you that way, what did you experience? What did you feel? What happened inside of you when that occurred? Because it's in here, it's not out here. I mean, if I hadn't told you that, you'd probably think I don't have any challenges with any human beings walking on planet Earth because I walk around the country talking about biblical peacemaking all the time. (laughs) I had a person one time say to me, well, we're not like you. (laughs) And I'm going, oh my goodness. (laughs) I have failed in how I have expressed myself because I am a failed man. I can run with the best of them, and I mean run away. I can be angry with the best of them. And if you don't know that, you're unaware of something inside of me. If I don't know that about you and what the impact of my words were when I spoke them to you, I am ignorant. I am missing something. I need to become aware. So the first dynamic in this is God-aware, self-aware, others-aware. There's, di- there's ways to do that. I won't go into those. If you get on the website, you'll see different kinds of things. Like there's... A, there's a, he, Ken's famous for using acrostics, Okay. But there's an acrostic called READ, and what READ, R-E-A-D, stands for four things. And it's four steps of how I look inside of me and read myself. How do I know how I'm doing right now? There's another, it's called SMILE, S-M-I-L-E, has five different steps to it. And it's the way I now project myself with you. How do I do that? Those are helpful things, and they're built off of biblical principles, Relational wisdom in the world is called emotional intelligence. And what Ken calls his work in in relational wisdom is enhanced emotional intelligence. And it's enhanced by the scripture. It's enhanced because we're dealing with God. We're not just dealing with each other. It's not just me deciding what I want to do or what I don't want to do. It's me saying, God, what do you want me to do? You know, it's not just me trying to figure out how do I deal with this loss. You know, this friendship has gone down and it's lost to me. It's depressing. It's hard. I get anxious. I get. I mean, I can use all kinds of emotive terms to describe what I'm going through. How do I deal with that? It gives me the opportunity to actually become aware of myself so I know what I am dealing with and then being able to respond to the other person differently. And then the engage principle, where now I'm going to take action with that, per- with that person. You know, sometimes we have to be patient, you know? You ever, you ever like that word, patience? <laughs> I don't like that word. I want it just to happen. Actually, I want it to happen naturally. Easily. No, no effort to it, you know. I don't want to have to I have to wait. Are you kidding me? Wait? Have you read Psalm 27 lately? Fourteen little verses that ends in wait? <laughs> and he says it twice, not once? Why do I have to wait? And he says wait. And you're waiting on him, by the way told the group yesterday, James 5 actually puts patience in play in this process of going from where I'm confused with you and I don't like what's going on, I'm not sure exactly what to do, and yet I'm supposed to count it all joy, you know, and we say give me a break, you know, in chapter 1, all the way to healing in chapter 5. And right before healing is a section on patience. And our patience is with the Lord, it's not with the other person. We miss the sovereignty of God relationally all the time, I know we believe in the sovereignty of God and I'm not doubting that or I'm not saying it's not fair to your theology it is fair to your theology but I was working with a PCA pastor you don't know that that denomination, you know really solid denomination right Um, good good folks I was working with a PCA pastor and I just looked at him and I said "Uh, Matt I believe more in the sovereignty of God than you do (laughs) because you don't believe that this situation with this other guy God has control of it. You believe it's unwieldy and it just needs to go away, (laughs) you know? And that's where we get practical theology from. Am I actually expressing this belief in the sovereignty of God in the middle of the challenge with that other person? Am I slowing down to figure out what's going on inside of me, to help understand what's going on inside of that other person, and to respond to those things effectively? And I'll tell you, one of the reasons we put this in our guide, this is... Crossroads Guide. We developed it. Um, but the reason we put this in our guide is not because this is the way to resolve the conflict. That's biblical peacemaking. This is the way, once the, peace, once the conflict has been resolved, to walk out our relationship with each other in a healthy way. You know, Ken calls it getting upstream of conflict. So th- this is for the person who isn't in conflict right now. You know, first of all, I have a little problem with that statement because Is there ever a time I'm not in conflict? (laughs) By the way, all I need is a mirror. (laughs) All I need is a mirror. You know? And when I start focusing there, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I represent a position on the issue. I tell you what I want. I tell you what I don't want. I tell you what I'm angry about. All of those things start inside the heart. Yesterday we spent a bit of time in James 4, and we read James 4, 1 through 3, and we thought out loud about what the source of conflict is. And James starts in verse 1. What is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? He changes the subject from what we think about the other person or the challenges we have to source. Source is the focus. His second question in verse 1 is it not the desires that wage war inside you? One translation says inside your heart. The word heart is actually not in the Greek there, but it means in your, in you. Is it not your desires? Conflict starts with something you want. You want, you don't get it, so you kill. You want, you don't get it, so you argue. You want, you don't get it, so you quarrel. You want, you don't get it, so you don't pray. You want, you don't get it, so you pray amiss. You ask God for things He'll never give you. <laughs> They're outside of His character. Yeah, does that make sense? I mean, the power of that. I mean, these two dynamics alone will, will step you into a process that will allow you to discover what God is up to in, in in working inside of you. So now, change it to where you see the face of the fellow on the on the brochure, and look over on the right-hand side of that, steps to pursuing peace together, and notice the orange. And you can read those four, we call them the G's, the four G's of peacemaking. This is a process, and this is pretty straightforward. Yesterday we talked a little bit about this process, and... We ended up focusing on specific elements inside of some of these processes, in particular the second one getting a log out of your eye, and the third the fourth one going and being reconciled that 's where we majorly spent our time yesterday well there 's four steps it starts with glorifying God well we 're to glorify God and we know it we 're commanded to glorify God, and we know it. We believe in that matter of fact. I have yet to meet a person in the churches that I've worked with who did not believe that they were here to glorify God. And it made no difference what the denominational background of that church was or the theology of that church. Some of them had very different theologies than I and you would probably have. We would say, eh, I don't think so, you know. And yet they believe in glorifying God. They believe in that. But do we do it? And how do we do it? If I gave you an assignment right now, this is kind of a cool table exercise, is for you to say, I'm going to give you three minutes, and I want you to write out your definition of glorifying God, and you can't use the word glorify. (laughs) You know, what would you write? And then you get that table, there. you give them three minutes to do that, and then they share it with each other, and they try to compile their definition of what glorifying God is. It's an interesting exercise, because most of us can't define it. Most of us cannot define it. We only define it by the word itself, glorify God. What does it mean? And get practical with it. How do, you actually, how do you actually glorify God? We don't know. That's common. Now, when you add conflict to that, and you add something that's confusing, now you're going, oh my goodness, what in the world can I do? But we're committed to glorifying God, right? Right? Please say right. (laughs) I know you are. (laughs) We are. I want to glorify God. I don't want to do something that's outside of His nature, His heart, who He is. I don't want my behavior to offend who Christ is to where I'm not like Him. Image. You know, we're image bearers. You and I are image bearers. We bear the image of God. We do. You do. Every one of us do. Human beings, we're, we're created in His image. And as Christians, now we have the image of Christ, and it's real to us. I don't want to do something that's aberrant to that. I want to live aligned with that. It actually helps me begin to figure out what is it that will glorify God the most? If I'm going to glorify God in this situation, and I come up with a list of five things that I could do, I need to back away from that list and say, which of those five things would glorify God in the most impactful manner possible? And that should be my choice. That should be my first step. So when I'm in conflict, when you're in conflict, what we believe is this glorify God thing starts the whole thing. Because if you're not committed to glorifying God, or if you're acting in a way that does not glorify God, I can't help you. That's between you and God. Now, can I help you see it? Can I help you know what to do with it, to change, to move away from it? Sure, we can talk about that. But if you come down to the bottom line of that saying, I'm not going to glorify God in this situation. And just for definitional purposes, James 4, one source of quarrels and conflict, desire, I want so... This is, this is his language, you want so you. You want so you. You want so you. You take an action on the back of that desire. You're actually trying to achieve that desire And does that desire glorify God or not? I'm not even thinking about it. I'm already outside the realm of the first G, the very first place to start. That's why I have to analyze and look and say, what is this desire? What does God say about my desires? Like if you wrote your desires down on a piece of paper and just wrote each one of them and then said, okay, now I'm going to find something in God's Word that speaks to that particular desire. What does He say about that desire? And it's amazing, but it matters not what the desire is, how much in God's Word there are about those things that we want. Those things that we want drive us when we actually should be glorifying God. We should be getting to Him and His change inside of us. So this dynamic... You know, when I'm trying to become self-aware, now I'm looking at my desires and saying, "Where did that desire even come from?" You know, just this is colloquial, and I'll just say it and then move on. I've got one more thing I want to make sure I say before we end up here in a very few minutes. We got about eleven minutes, I think. Um, have you ever wanted something, gotten it, and then didn't want it anymore? <laughs> Never. <laughs> Never. <laughs> <laughs> Only Bill, right? <laughs> yeah. So did I really want it in the first place? Do I even know if I want what I want? Have I even slowed down long enough to think about what, if I want this, what am I not wanting? And maybe what I'm not wanting is what I want more than this. Or this is just a placeholder, you know? It's just a, it's just a stall. It's a slowdown, it's a pause, it's me just simply saying, I need this right now, so I want it right now. I have a good friend, he teaches at Southern Seminary, his name's Robert Jones, and Robert's written some things on anger and that kind of stuff, really good, um, um, really good stuff. But nonetheless, he ends up saying, when a person says, I need... An idol is talking. My idolatry causes me to move away from needing God to needing it, something other than God. And we, we're stung by that bee, you know? You and I have that problem. It's innate with inside of us. It's, it's not going away. And If we don't slow down and actually think about what is this thing I want, and am I really going to get it? Am I, is it really going to satisfy? Well, where does satisfaction come from, right? It doesn't come by achieving the wants, and, and that we want things that we end up not wanting, or wondering, why in the world do I ever want that? Why didn't I want this all of a sudden to become aware of something else? What is the awareness piece of that? So I can learn, I can grow, I can understand. Does that make sense? And and this is all revolving around the practicality of how you define glorifying God. Because it's not just a theological commitment to glorify God that's the point of glorifying God. It's actually glorifying God. (laughs) It's in the practicality. How do you glorify God in your thoughts? How do you glorify God in your emotions? How do you glorify God in your intent? All of those questions need to be asked and answered, and they get asked and answered inside because we can't look. I mean, I look at you and I say, are you, are you committed to glorifying God? And your answer is going to be yes. But are you glorifying God in that situation? I don't know. And, and, but we need to get... Does that make sense? So glorifying God is a big deal. Now, getting the log out of your own eye, and, and this is my last piece... If you turn to that back flap, and you'll notice a spiral up at the top of the flap. There's quite a number of processes, as we call them, in biblical peacemaking. This is one of them. This comes out of a lot of backgrounds. Ken writes about it in chapter 5 of the book The Peacemaker. On his website, there's an article called Getting to the Heart of Conflict, which will describe this to you as well. Good article. Um, A lot going on inside of it. But you'll notice the orange over to the left-hand side of the spiral Progression of an idol. This is how idolatry happens inside of us. James 4 1 to 5 actually describes that idolatry. It describes the spiral. I want something, desire. I demand it. You know, so you. I desire this, so you. You know, and and it, it turns in not just so that you act, even though that's what that means, but it's so you. You have to act too. So my desire now becomes your desire. No, it's not. It's my desire. But I'm imposing it on you, and I'm saying you must want what I want. Well, in, in our work, the biggest place where we see this impact a setting that causes people to stay you know, challenged and in conflict is when they have an outcome. They desire an outcome, and they're committed to that outcome. The other person doesn't want that outcome, and so now it's never never going to have peace, never going to find a solution because the other person doesn't want that outcome. All those are desires. It's James 4. We've got to move away from that. Now, do I need to understand them? Yes, but what if God wanted something different is kind of the natural question to ask. What if God wanted something different than you're, you're committed to that outcome? What if God wanted it to be different than that? Is that okay? You know? And what don't you know right now? You know, I put my fist above the head yesterday. I said, do you see it? The group said yes. And I said, I don't. (laughs) Is it there? Yeah? I don't think so. (laughs) It's above your head. No, it's not. (laughs) It's all proximity. I need somebody to do this. And every one of us are in that chair. Every one of us get driven by the desires that we have. And we get idolatrous. And C.S. Lewis, he wrote his little essay called The Inner Ring. You ought to read it. It's in The Weight of Glory, a series of essays by C.S. Lewis. It's good. Um, But he ends up making a case that when we want something and we end up having it as the thing that we have to achieve, we're already in idolatry. So our statement is, when a desire becomes a demand, an idol is talking. Idolatry is very real. It's very much a part of our lives. I am an idolatrous man. I wish I weren't. I long not to be. When that principle of the Ten Commandments come in and it says, if you break one, you break them all, I go... (laughs) thought I was pretty good because I was keeping seven of them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a failed man, especially when it comes to obedience and, and, and perfection. Are you kidding me? You know, being like Christ? I mean, man, my heart changes in a sentence. I'm with you and we're talking and everything's going well and you say something, one sentence and I'm changed. Your heart is fickle, my heart is fickle. And we have to protect it. Guard your heart with all diligence. I need to guard it. What am I guarding it from? Idolatry. If I don't know what my idols are, how do I guard myself from it? We talked about some of those things yesterday. This progression, my opinion, my experience, the most important peacemaking process known to humankind if i can actually get to the bottom of this and name the kind of idolatry that is nature to me mine natural to me then i'll know how to guard myself from it i'll know how to be aware of it in the conflict with you instead of serving an idol i can serve the living god and you can too it's discoverable and the process is as in james 4 we believe and this process is just it's a dynamic you can read about it multiple people, you know, Paul Tripp's usually the one I name, have written about this, this thing, um, this progress, uh, but, it's, but it's a big deal. Um, so, I, I know we've got three minutes, and I can't do this justice in three minutes, but I want to add one more piece to it, and then I'll close this out. Um, Philippians chapter 2, um, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, verse 5. Verse 3 and 4, name that attitude. Verse 6 through 11, the most superlative part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of how he came, bore our sin on his body, died for us, received the name which is above every name, and every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. I mean, it's a superlative text of Scripture. Demonstrates those two characteristics in verse 3 and 4 of Philippians chapter 2. And verse 3 says that I need to make you more important to me than me. Conflict doesn't let me do that. I have to to elevate you and make you more important to me. And verse 4 says I need to serve your interest, not just my own. Interest being defined differently than desire of James 4 Interest being godly interest. If you read on down the text in the middle of that chapter, you'll see there's interest of Christ. We're serving the interest of Christ. When I have an interest of Christ, I need to know what that interest is that you have, and I need to serve that interest. That is what I call practical humility. It's what Jesus came into this world to do. When Christ came into this world, He did not want brokenness with the Father The Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat drops of blood over that brokenness happening the very next day. He knew it was coming. And he said, Lord, Father, let this cup pass from me. He knew he was going to the cross. He was not going to not die the next day. He was totally committed to that. But he took our interest and elevated our interest above his own. He took our interest of needing a Savior, our interest of needing forgiveness for sin, to needing a cleansing agent, the blood of Jesus Christ. He took that interest and went to the cross. Not my will, but thy will be done. All of those wonderful things in that Garden of Gethsemane experience of Christ. Sweating drops of blood, the capillaries burst, and blood came out of sweat pores. That's the kind of tension that he felt that night. You and I have not done that as yet, according to verse 3 of Hebrews 12. We don't shed blood over our sin. He did. He did and why did he do it because he humbled himself he took our interest instead of his own and served that interest Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 and 4 and 5 call you and I to serve each other's interests figure out how to do that and watch what happens it's it's a it's a game-changer and I'm not saying there's not a lot of barriers to that I am saying that's part of the solution if you if you think in terms of getting to a solutional path, uh, you're you're thinking down the right the right path. Lord, I know our time's gone. Uh, thanks for these folks listening to me for a whole hour. I appreciate that and use this uh, this conversation this information for your purposes and their lives and my life in the life of your church. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.